Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, masking warning. I'm strongly recommending that all Ontarians, not just those at high risk, wear a mask in indoor public settings. Ontario's top doctor strongly recommends indoor masking to protect children from rapidly spreading respiratory viruses. As Quebec's College of Physicians makes a similar plea, we've heard all of this before over the last two years, except this time, no one is mandating masks. So how big is the risk? And what would it take to bring back mandates? We'll dig into that. Then, a Canadian first espionage charge. It is alleged that he obtained this information to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interests. RCMP arrested a Hydro-Quebec employee today on charges he allegedly sold trade secrets to China. We break down the charges and assess the national security risk with former CSIS chief Ward Elcock and Trudeau back on the world stage. Russia's brutal war in Ukraine is creating food and energy crises. The PM calls out Russia at the G20 meeting that didn't include Vladimir Putin. Canada is ramping up the rhetoric against China while designating the Islamic Republic of Iran a regime that has engaged in terrorism. MPs break down Canada's lines in the sand. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Ontario's top doctor is strongly recommending residents wear a mask in all indoor public settings in order to protect kids. Province's chief, chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, stopped short of announcing a full-on mask mandate. It comes as Ontario's children's hospitals are under unprecedented pressure from the triple threat of respiratory viruses. That's COVID-19, the flu, and RSV. As a result, some pediatric hospitals have already started cutting back on surgeries to free up capacity. Here's how dire the situation is at some pediatric hospitals across the province. On Saturday, the intensive care unit at Toronto's Sick Kids Hospital was at 132% capacity. The Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO, here in Ottawa, Pediatric units there are at 134%, and at Hamilton's McMaster's Children's Hospital, the inpatient unit there is operating at over 140% capacity. For more on this, let's bring in CTV News' Queen's Park reporter, Siobhan Morris. Thanks for joining us, Siobhan. So Dr. Moore isn't bringing back a mask mandate. Did he say why not? less a, a, a specific explanation, more of a deflection, I'd say, Mike. He, he focused on more of what we are doing in close contact with kids in particular. He said that that's the group right now that he's most vulnerable about because of what we're seeing happen in pediatric hospitals. So you heard Dr. Moore say that, yes, masking in a place like a mall can certainly help reduce community transmission of COVID, RSV, and the flu, but he really wants people to be paying close attention to keeping their distance from kids if they are sick as adults or older children. It might mean even if you're the parent of a child and you wake up with a cold or flu yourself, that you wear a mask in your own home to care for your kids. So that's sort of the focus more is those, those closer one-on-one -on -one interactions as opposed to trying to reduce community spread on a broader scale. It was interesting though, because you mentioned they're in somebody's own home, because there was a lot of urging and suggesting and in terms of 
people wearing masks in private settings. What's the recommendation there, even if someone doesn't have symptoms? The recommendation is really just if you have symptoms. There's not any recommendation that you need to wear a mask if you aren't sick. Uh, but there is just concern, uh, I, I think, to uh, not, not necessarily about symptoms, but uh, parents of infants should try to keep them away from large gatherings from crowds because we know that they are so vulnerable, child, uh, children under five, to having severe outcomes from RSV and the flu in particular. Those are the people who are turning up in hospital. Those are the people who are on respirators in hospitals right across the province right now. And, you know, picking up on that point, Siobhan, I mean, children's hospitals all over, all over the province are over capacity. Many parents are worried. So what did Dr. Morris say about masks in schools and daycares going forward to prevent the spread of the flu or even RSV? When he talked about that strong recommendation to wear masks in public places, he specifically mentioned those two settings, schools and child care centers, Again, shopping, uh, stopping short of a mandate. He does say that mandates are still possible down the road. He didn't say how bad things would have to get, what kind of indicators he'd be looking for to bring them back. But that certainly is not at, uh, off the table at this point in the fall. So really sort of keeping it in his back pocket, I guess. Very much so. And I think that that's, we are hearing that there are some people who aren't encouraged enough by this advice. They really want the hammer here, that the line in the sand saying that it, that is, it is required, that it is something enforceable uh, to wear a mask in a school, on public transit, in a child care center. CTV News' is Siobhan Morris. Thank you so much for this, Siobhan. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Now let's bring in some medical officials to have their say. Joining me now are Dr. Michael Howlett. He's the president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians and Dr. Earl Rubin. He's the director of Infectious Disease Division at the Montreal Children's Hospital. Welcome to you both doctors. Dr. Howlett, let's start with you. As you're seeing this surge in respiratory viruses in hospitals, were you disappointed that Ontario did not bring in a mask mandate to the entire province today? I think that I think I would say less disappointed, but more concerned that we're going to fall behind in uh, addressing the situation. If you talk to the infectious disease experts, they would say this is precisely the time that you want to put in place your public health uh, preventive measures. Uh, when we're seeing admissions to hospital, I was working last night, I worked on the weekend, we're seeing a large number of children. I've admitted a couple of children in the last few days. That the children are sicker with these flus than we usually see in the past. And, uh, and of course, they're ending up in ICUs. They're ending up uh, with uh, prolonged illness on ventilators in, in some instances. And our pediatric units are becoming overwhelmed with the cases. I don't know what it takes to say that we are in an impending uh, crisis of, uh, of this uh, particular winter flu season. And it's starting like two and three months earlier than it usually does every other year. And to that point though, when you consider that we are seeing the warning signs, are you at all shocked that, you know, a mask is not intrusive? Are you at all, at all shocked that they're not just saying, you know what, let's just throw them back on in, in daycares and schools? Uh, I, I see no reason why not. I mean, I have family members myself with, with immunosuppression, with children and when the children get sick they mask or they stay at a different house i don't know why that should be any different for anyone else than it is for me uh, or my family i i think that uh, the responsible thing to do is to try to prevent transmission don't wait till people get sick
Dr. Rubin, I was going to ask you, the Quebec College of Physicians is also recommending people wear masks in public spaces because of the overflow uh, pediatric emergency rooms. How bad is the situation at the Montreal Children's Hospital right now? It's horrific. Uh, the viruses have gone viral, uh, as they said. It, the numbers of uh, for the emergency room, they're at over 200% capacity and similar numbers to what you had quoted for the Ontario hospitals for our inpatient units and for our ICUs are also over 100% capacity. And how do you do that? Is we have a brand new hospital or it's five years old and they're single bedded rooms, but we are doubling kids up uh, because we just don't have the space. Now, Dr. Rubin, is it a case of the system not being ready for this or politicians uh, not being ready for this? Because we know it's, there's like a bit of a trifecta here of COVID-19, the flu and RSV. So what has been happening at the hospitals uh, in terms of preparing for this, this type of onslaught? Yeah, so really at this point in time, the overwhelming majority is still RSV. Flu is here. Uh, so we anticipate that the numbers will go up. Uh, for COVID right now, we are relatively stable. The majority of kids who are admitted with COVID are admitted for another reason and found to be COVID positive. But with BQ1 and 1.1 and BA 4.6, we don't know what's coming. So that's where that triple threat uh, really is. But at this point in time, it's really RSV that is the issue. So to answer your question, um, we have, there's kind of that perfect storm that's brewing. We have easy transmission of these viruses. We have a population that is not immune because they've been wearing masks and distance and not going to school in the last couple of years. Uh, so you get increased numbers who are vulnerable. And on top of that, you have kids who are not only vulnerable, but because they don't have immunity are getting sicker. So all of these things are uh, coming into play. In terms of preparedness, to answer your question, at least here in Montreal and Quebec, we moved to a brand new hospital. And what the, the gov government did is they decreased the number of beds uh, as we moved to the hospital, feeling that there are uh, more kids and adults, for that matter, could be managed on outpatient basis. And we don't need as many acute care beds. And that really has come to the forefront during COVID for the adults and now for us that we really don't have enough beds. If we did have enough beds, the next problem is do we have manpower? And nurses are burning out. There are different political issues that prevent um, other nurses to get licensed. It's all of these things come into play. Dr. Dr. Howlett, I, I've got only 30 seconds left. I mean, are you seeing this similar situation in Ontario, especially when you consider that some hospitals are, are looking to admit ICU patients that are age 14 and older in adult ICUs? Is this becoming a bit of a domino effect? I think uh, my colleague has explained the situation in his jurisdiction as, as it is very similar in our jurisdiction. We are seeing the same types of uh, viral uh, uh, issues. We're seeing the same type of admissions to hospital. We have the same hospital capacity issues. This is a Canada-wide problem. This is an international problem. We see in many countries that we have prepared over the years for a stable healthcare system without stresses. And now that stresses on the system have come along, we're now realizing that we are under capacity in our 
capability to deal with with disasters, with uh, significant uh, infectious disease or other types of events. We don't have the capacity. It hasn't been built into our system, and it it, it needs targeted intervention very soon uh, on on the part of those who take care of and fund the system. Uh, this is going to be a long-term problem of resource uh, for the next 30 years. And if we don't get it right now, we're going to have a lot worse trouble than we have now. Dr. Michael Howlett, Dr. Earl Rubin, thank you both for joining us. We appreciate that. Despite what they have described there in terms of the healthcare crisis, healthcare was not the focus of today's fall economic update in Ontario. Well, the Ontario government posted a $2.1 billion surplus last year. The government is projecting a deficit of $12.9 billion in this fiscal year. It goes to $8.1 billion in 2023 and just $700 million in the year 2024 2025, that fiscal year. The province's finance minister says the government is preparing for the economy and job market to slow in response to global uncertainty, but he adds the new outlook will invest in affordability and jobs with a focus on infrastructure investment. We're taking a responsible and targeted approach, making record investments in the priorities that matter to the people of Ontario. Coming up, a Hydro-Quebec employee has been arrested and charged with spying for China. How significant is this alleged case of espionage? We speak to the former CSIS director, Ward Elcock, next. Stay with us. PowerPlay will return. Foreign actor interference is a topic and a sphere of police operations that's recently been gaining a lot of traction. We are more and more active in that sphere because we do believe that it is a subject that directly affects national security. For the first time in Canadian law enforcement history, the RCMP has charged someone with espionage for obtaining trade secrets. The suspect, a 35-year-old Hydro-Quebec employee, Yu Shang Wang was arrested this morning for allegedly selling trade secrets to the Chinese government. Here's a list of the charges he's facing. Obtaining trade secrets, unauthorized use of a computer, fraud for obtaining trade secrets, and breach of public breach of trust by a public officer. According to the RCMP, Wang published papers and patents in connection with Chinese post-secondary school without Hydro-Quebec's permission. RCMP launched its investigation last August after Hydro-Quebec's corporate security branch filed the complaint. It will appear in court tomorrow. So just how vulnerable is Canada to espionage? Let's find out. Joining me now is former CSIS director Ward Elcock. Ward, thank you so much for joining us again. Pleasure. In your mind, this is kind of low-end espionage. Yeah, to describe it as espionage is probably a bit of a stretch. I'm not suggesting that it's not important and it's good that, that he has been arrested if, if the charges are, are, are as alleged. Um, and it's clearly probably important technology. So is it important? Yes. Uh, but is this the most high-end Chinese espionage or the most high-end espionage we face from other countries? No, probably not. When you consider the location, Hydro-Quebec, obviously critical in infrastructure, how much of a concern should that be, not only for Hydro-Quebec, but for other similar critical infrastructures and crown corporations in this country? 
Uh, if you're, if I think if one were to worry about critical infrastructure, Hydro Quebec would be at the top of the one of the institutions at the top of the list. Although in this case, it seems to have been much more that he was interested in battery technology. Apparently, that was his specialization. So he was looking for information about batteries and how to make them and and how to make them function better. I assume, which is not unimportant, but it, it doesn't necessarily threaten our our critical infrastructure in the same way as, say, an attack on mm -hmm. Hydro-Quebec's network work. So I guess one of the questions here is, did all of the security systems work, in essence? Because even though, as you were saying, not high-end espionage, at least it was caught. Yes, in fact, he seems to have been caught relatively quickly, uh, and the company seems to have been able to identify, in fact, that there was a problem. Um, uh, if, if it had been much more complex operation involving, say, uh, MSS officers and other intelligence agencies, that might have been much more hard, hard to, to identify than this appears to have been. Perhaps not a wake-up call to other crown corporations or others in the security field, but is it a good reminder to kind of review and to maybe do a security audit of some of these critical infrastructure? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no question that that's the kind of wake-up call that people should be heeding and, and paying attention to. In terms of, of the, the worry about China possibly actually conducting some sort of espionage, it would be bigger, likely, I mean, what I'm getting from you, but at the same time, what do we need to be watching out for right now as a country? Well, there are a number of strands to Chinese espionage over the years. Um, th there are obviously the strands of trying to recruit somebody who will bring home technology. Foreign interference is also a huge issue uh, in this country because of our large population. Uh, Chinese agents coming here and trying to influence Canadian citizens, uh, trying to scare Canadian citizens to, to go home, for example. Um, uh, those kinds of efforts are, are probably more serious than, than are, are kind of at the higher level of what and those reports of potential interference in the election. Yes, exactly. Those types of things as yes. well. Ward Elcock, former director from CSIS, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that Pleasure. today. And here's some other news you need to know. More bad news for the Republicans this weekend. The U.S. Democrats pulled off a major win, narrowly holding control of the Senate. That win in Nevada allows the Democrat-controlled Senate to reject legislation sent over by the House. Now, control of the House of Representatives is still up for grabs following the midterm elections. Republicans are hoping for a slim majority over Congress as the vote counting continues. And two Toronto-based food banks say the rising cost of living has pushed food bank use in that city to crisis levels. In the last 12 months alone, there have been nearly 2 million visits to food banks in Toronto, according to a new report from Daily Bread Food Bank and the North York Harvest Food Bank. That demand is projected to hit over 2 million before the end of this year. The CEO of Daily Bread Food Bank says food banks are serving more new clients each month and seeing more cases of severe in food insecurity. On average, clients are also younger and more likely to be employed. Coming up, Prime Minister Trudeau is in Bali, Indonesia for the G20 summit. How should Canada handle the diplomatic dance with Russia and China? We'll bring on our panel of MPs to weigh in right after the break. Power play will return right after this.
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. The influential group represents 60% of the world's population and 80% of the global GDP. Now, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be the focus of the meetings, all eyes were on a one-on-one -on -one between the presidents of China and the U.S. So will the Prime Minister also have this sit-down with President Xi Jinping? Well, let's bring in CTV's Annie Bergeron Oliver in Bali. Annie... Take it away. U.S. President Joe Biden went into his meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping looking to set the guardrails of a frayed relationship. About three hours later, the U.S. president emerged talking about the shared collaboration that the two intend to have moving forward. The need to collaborate, he said, is crucial right now. Now, the U.S. president isn't the only person, the only leader that's going to be having a discussion with Xi Jinping in a pull-aside or bilateral meeting. Australia and France will also be meeting with Xi Jinping. Today, the foreign minister was asked whether Canada asked to have a meeting with China or whether we're being frozen out, and she refused to answer. Canada's priority here at the G20 really is on Ukraine and the economic crisis because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, Canada imposed 23 additional sanctions on Russian officials, including prison guards, judges, and other officials. In addition, Canada also announced $500 million in additional military aid for Ukraine. How exactly that money is going to be spent and how quickly it will get to Ukraine Jolie didn't really offer any answers, Mike. What's going to be interesting at this summit is the collaboration around Russia. There really are two divides that are coming up here. There's the Western countries who have condemned Russia for the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Then there are countries like China and India who have refused to condemn Russia. And this all makes it extremely difficult to come up with some type of joint G20 communique. Indonesia, the host country, has sort of asked some of these more Western countries to dial back the rhetoric in an effort to get that communique signed. But whether it's going to happen, Mike, well, that's still unclear. Thanks for that, Annie. In a tweet, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the prime minister and the Canadian government for the half a billion dollars in military aid. Zelensky wrote, quote, this again proves that Ukraine and Canada are true allies who share common values and have the same goals. He added, Ukraine will always remember the help provided by the fraternal Canada in the most difficult of times. Now, those are just a few of the issues Prime Minister Trudeau and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie will be stick-handling at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. So what role can Canada play in rallying support for Ukraine and further isolating Russia? Will Trudeau get a face-to-face -face meeting with President Xi at the G20? Let's take those questions to our panel of MPs. Joining me from the Liberals is Francesco Sobrara, Conservative House Leader Andrew Scheer and NDP Foreign Affairs Critic Heather McPherson. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Sobrato, let's start with you. Canada has clearly taken on this, um, this position of saying that they won't meet with Russia. That's what Melanie Jolie said. She's not going to meet with Sergei Lavrov, her, her, um, her, her uh, counterpart. Some diplomats have said that dialogue would be a good thing. So why not try and have a conversation? Well, quite simply, it's... You know, at these international forums where uh, Russia may be a participant, it's not business with usual Russia right now. 
And we need to emphasize that point. We need to, as a government, we need to work with, continue to work with our allies, which you've seen in today's announcement of a further $500 million of aid to Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. We'll be there for Ukraine, and we have been. But with regards to Russia, we must isolate them. We must call out their actions. And we definitely do not need to meet with them at this juncture. Uh, we need to continue to isolate them. It is not business as usual with Russia at these international forums. They need to be held accountable for their actions in invading a barbaric invasion of Ukraine, of its territorial sovereignty, of the freedom of Ukrainians. And we will continue to show leadership on the world stage on this front. Mr. Sher, I'll bring you in here. Your party has been calling to expel diplomats or to bring Canadian diplomats home from Russia. However, you know, we have had diplomats say that, you know, having that diplomatic channel is very, very important, keeping our Canadians there. Now, nine months since Russia invaded Ukraine, is there a case to be made for continuing to keep those diplomatic channels open? Well, I think it's important to see some, some signs of good faith from the side of Russia. And all we're seeing is a continued attack on civilians and, and horrific uh, uh, scenes coming out of, of Ukraine. So, but, you know, to, to go back and talk about how, how we got to where we are, it, it, it's all well and good to talk about isolating Russia here in 2022. But let's look at how the Liberal government's policy have helped Russia when Canada is unable to get its energy to European markets when we have a prime minister under Justin Trudeau who's cancelling pipeline projects or standing in the way of LNG that can help Europe get off of Russian uh, oil and, and energy. Uh, that, that's something that Canada missed an opportunity. But aren't they doing Trudeau. that now by but, trying to help? But it's a little bit late after the fact. You know, sending uh, sending money to Ukraine to help them is, is it will, will no doubt uh, uh, bring some assistance to the people on the ground. But part of that should be helping make sure that consumer dollars from Europe aren't going into Vladimir Putin's coffers. And Vladimir Putin made a lot of money over the last few years selling energy to Europe. That could have been Canadian energy, but we had a prime minister here in Canada that blocked those projects. Mr. Sobrera, I know you want to get in. I'll yes, give you a second. Ms. McPherson, though, I wanted to ask you, first of all, on that aid for Ukraine, Canada kicks off the G20 in saying that. What do you make of that strategy in trying to make that the focus of this summit so far? I mean, I think the the global community has to come together and do whatever they can for Ukraine right now. Canada has to do whatever they can for Ukraine at the moment. Um, you know, I think that Lavrov shouldn't even be there, to be perfectly honest. I think that it is 100% appropriate not to be meeting with him right now. You know, I think that our government should meet with Lavrov when Russia's out of Ukraine, mm -hmm. full stop. Like, that's that's just it. Now, in, in terms of, of, you know, conversations about energy and whatnot, Come on, like it's been both conservatives and liberals who have failed to get things done. When when was the energy east not brought forward? I mean, I, I, I do find this a little bit of a problem, a little bit of a challenge when we hear that this isn't helping. You know, I just got back from Germany. I was in Germany last week meeting with with the chancellor, with uh, with the head of the chancellery. What Germany wants is to be able to go forward with a renewable energy process. They need gas right now, but they have a plan. They have a plan to work towards a renewable future. I met with them. I spoke to them. So, so you know, there's a lot of conversations that need to be happening because the world did change on February 24th. Things did change. Nobody expected that this war would weaponize energy, would weaponize food, would get us in this situation. Uh, but, but realistically, let's look at forward. Let's look at how we support Ukraine, how we support Germany, how we support the global community. And before this conversation devolves into something just on pipelines, I'll let Mr. Sabara get in because I know you wanted to respond to Mr. Scher quickly. Look, uh, Canada, is a, Canada, excuse me, Canada is a provider of energy uh, here in North America and throughout the world, and we will continue to do so. Uh, LNG Canada through Kitimat will be 
uh, operating in, in short order, order and we'll export LNG uh, to Asia and that will displace uh, LNG to be able to be exported to, to Europe. We are there. The German uh, Prime Minister was here in Canada, Olaf Schwartz was here. We signed agreements on hydrogen. We are there participating. We're there uh, assisting countries in their energy needs. Absolutely. Uh, to, to, to say that it's, uh, you know, we stop pipelines. TMX pipeline has been construction. We've gone forward. We've gone forward with that. We okay, point taken. Let's, let's, let's change gears because I don't want to get into pipelines today. That we can do another day. We'll invite you all back, Mr. Shear. I wanted to ask about China. So President Biden did have a meeting today with Xi Jinping. Yes. Nothing on the schedule yet for Canada. Is China freezing Canada out, Mr. Sobera? Uh, no. Uh, not at all. I think the the the, China, the Canadian uh, Sino relationship has always been a mature one. Uh, our government has been very clear. We will defend our interests and we will defend our values. I, I like to personally say that with China, we need to cooperate, uh, we need to compete, and when necessary, we need to challenge. And that's uh, that's that should be the direction of our foreign policy. Uh, we need to be di uh, direct with the Chinese government. It's obviously an important trading relationship, important economic relationship, but we also need to defend the values that we believe in: freedom and democracy. Very simple. Would you like to see Mr. Shear a meeting between Prime Minister Trudeau and, Ms. and President Xi to look at that and to draw the battle lines that Canada is saying that it will in the preview that we saw of the Indo-Pacific strategy that Melanie Jolie put out yesterday, last week? I just have no confidence that uh, Justin Trudeau is going to defend Canada's interests when it relates to the Chinese uh, communist government. If, if we look we at can, the, if, if we look at if we look at just, just, just a minute, let's, I, let's I, let him finish. I, I let you speak when you're erroneously talking about your government's record on energy. Let, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll address. The, the question that Mike asked. It's clear that the Trudeau policy over the last several years has been a policy of appeasement. Uh, they, uh, the, the Prime Minister started off his foreign affairs agenda with trying to get a free trade deal uh, out of China. Uh, we, we had a terrible situation where two Canadians were illegally uh, de were detained. And now we have reports of Chinese interference in Canadian elections. And Justin Trudeau has sat on that for months without doing anything about it. While at the same time, we're talking about trying to build a block to counter China's uh, uh, clout in the region. The Liberal government sent 200 $150 million of Canadian taxpayers' money to the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which is a tool for the Chinese regime, the, the, the communist regime in Beijing, to expand its influence in the region. Canadian tax dollars helping Chinese communist that's, foreign that's policy. Okay, so Ms. these Ms. are the types of things that we could that's do today correct. to reduce the uh, impact that China Ms. can Ms. McPherson, what do you want to see in this Indo-Pacific strategy and Canada specifically with China right now at this summit? Our relationship with China is complex, but nobody here needs to be told that. And so we, we can't be all in or all out. We do have to work with China on things like climate change. There is no climate strategy that where China's not involved. However, there is a genocide happening in China against the Uyghur people. So, you know, we need to put things in place like forced labor legislation. There is there is excellent legislation that's been developed by one of my colleagues, Peter Julian, that could be put into place. So we need to do that. And then in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy, we, we do need to build those relationships with like-minded democracies, with friends. Uh, and I think that the fact that we've been waiting for this Indo-Pacific strategy for so long doesn't give me the confidence that this, that this government is taking this as seriously as I would like them to. We, we, we need to be able to look at this relationship. We can't not work with China. We can't pretend they're not a massive economy that we are very, very um, tied to. Right. But we can reduce our reliance on that. We can push them on things like human rights and make sure that when we bring products in 
for example, cotton, tomatoes, whatnot, that it's not being made by forced labor. We have the tools to do some of those things. And I think those are some of those, those concrete steps we can I've take. I've only got 20 seconds, but Mr. Sobar, I'll give it to you because you are itching to get in here. <laughs> uh, you know, on issues of global importance, climate change, the world economy, China's there. And we, you know, anyone understands economics understands that. We as a country have a trading relationship with China. It's complex, yes. We need to defend our interests when required to do so, but we also need to defend the values of human rights and democracy and freedom around the world. Why and that's what we'll continue to And, and we're going to have to leave it there, Mr. Scheer. I will invite you back personally. And how has this been fun or what, having everybody in person? <laughs> Wow, Francisco Sobara, Andrew Scheer, Heather McPherson. Thank you all for being here. Thanks very much. Coming up, why does the government want to see MPs burning the midnight oil? Government House Leader Mark Holland breaks down his motion next here on Power Play. It's a massive undermining of a very important check on the government's uh, uh, ability to ramp through its uh, agenda because of the hypocrisy of a government that has so much mismanaged its own timetable, its own calendar, and because of the, the, the direct impact that this motion will have on committees. Conservatives cannot support this motion. But because we are hopeful that some of what the government house leader said may have been sincere, we are hoping that they may support an amendment to specifically protect the very important work that committees are doing. Well, the countdown to the end of the year is already on for parliamentarians. The House is set to rise in five weeks for the winter holiday break. Now, Government House Leader Mark Holland says his party has an ambitious legislative agenda. So he put forward a motion to extend the House of Commons sitting hours. Liberals claim more midnight sittings are needed in response to conservative obstruction in the House. Those MPs ready to wrap up for the year, what bills do the Liberals want to push through before the break? Let's bring in the government House Leader Mark, Hall Mark Holland. Mr. Holland, thanks for joining us. So why is this necessary to have more midnight sittings before Christmas? We almost never see this. It's true. We almost never see it. But, I, I, but the reality uh, is, and the, and the thing that we've been facing with the Conservatives, is uh, constant obstruction. Uh, they're not letting us know how many speakers they need, how many days uh, are going to be needed for bills. They're one party of four in the House of Commons. Uh, and yet, uh, by not telling us what they're doing or how many speakers they have, uh, they're holding up critical legislation, often doing so on legislation they themselves support. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of instances where uh, they're holding it up, holding it up, uh, and then uh, they actually support the legislation. Uh, and, and, of course, Canadians uh, in, this, in this time right now have very specific needs. Uh, Parliament is trying to respond to. And uh, just obstructing for obstructing stake I don't think is, uh, is appropriate or, or correct. So what is this urgent legislation? Can you give me two examples that need these midnight sittings? Sure. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, we've been working on, obviously, uh, is the, 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 the firearms legislation we have in C-21. Uh, that provides critical support um, to make sure that, um, that we take action, appropriate action on firearms. Uh, we have the official languages legislation. Uh, we have important legislation now with the fall economic statement that we're going to need um, to adopt to get support to, uh, to Canadians. 
Um, so there's a lot of different pieces of legislation just over the next five weeks. And some of them are rather technical. Uh, you know, I would look at uh, the improvements to uh, uh, accountability around judges on C9. Um, that's one that conservatives uh, support, and yet they consistently wouldn't say how many speakers they have. Uh, we even had a technical difficulty in the House where we needed to get 20 minutes back. They refused to give it, taking up another House day that was unnecessary. So these kinds of tactics uh, and stalling um, are, are very unfortunate. And, and what I said when I introduced this is it gives us the option to go to midnight. Uh, we don't have to. Uh, if the Conservatives refuse to say how many speakers they have, it provides a relief mechanism for them to be able to figure out how many speakers they have as they go into the wee hours of the night. Uh, but Or they could just simply tell us how many speakers they have so we can appropriately uh, uh, plan the, uh, the legislative agenda. So, Mr. Holland, the Conservatives have put forward an amendment to make sure that committees won't be cancelled while you're doing these midnight sittings. Will you support this? Well, I certainly support the concern that um, committees uh, need to be protected and their work needs to be protected. The concern, uh, but the motion, discussed, but the amendment, I mean... Well, the, mo the motion, the, amend the amendment, no. The amendment uh, which uh, states that the clerk has to give an ironclad guarantee that no committee under any circumstances will be moved is unreasonable. Uh, what is reasonable is to protect uh, critical committee work and to make sure that we're able to move and accommodate both calendars uh, and to have that conversation. Uh, and, and that's what I want to be able to do. I think that we, in certain instances, have been able to work very reasonably together to be able to adopt um, uh, legislation. Uh, but it is wholly inappropriate, uh, I think, to uh, create a carve-out um, that is uh, not even able to negotiate or have a conversation with. Uh, but I do, on a broader sense, I am very committed to making sure that key committee work, important committee work, is not disrupted uh, and that we can work so with So then why not just agree parties. to the amendment? And I, and I would have to say... Well, just as I said, if I agree to the amendment, uh, then we're stuck in a situation where uh, the, the clerk, uh, could, for disruption of any committee for any reason, would stop the ability for the House to sit longer. Uh, there's many instances where the work that's before committees is not pressing and could be deferred or could be moved, uh, and the matters that we have in front of the House are urgent and must be dealt with. So that that lack of flexibility, that lack of moving is part of the problem. And the second thing I will say is that we have a problem, and that is the Conservative Party when it comes to obstruction. Uh, neither the New Democrats nor the Bloc have been any problem whatsoever in telling us how many speakers they have and how much time they need. The Conservatives, every time we have a bill, even when it's bills they support, refuse to tell us how many speakers they have and are, are frankly playing games in obstruction. This allows them, if their problem truly was speakers and allowing more speakers, then this fixes that problem and allows them to speak uh, however they lo they long they want into the night. And I know time is an issue for Parliament. It's an issue for this show as well. Government House Leader Mark Holland, thanks so much for joining us. Still to come, world leaders gather in Bali for the G20 summit. But with Russia's invasion of Ukraine top of mind, can world leaders present a united front against Vladimir Putin? Former Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay joins the press gallery right after this. G20 leaders are meeting in Indonesia, but with a global backdrop that includes Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Canada trying to redefine its relationship with China, can the world leaders come together? Today, the government announced more money in defense aid for Ukraine and a new round of sanctions. 
Russia returned the favor, sanctioning 100 Canadians, including CTV journalists Paul Workman and Danielle Hamamjin. While Canada is keeping the focus on Ukraine, Joe Biden met with Canada, China's President Xi Jinping for three hours. But Canada doesn't have a meeting with China's president on the books just yet. So is China freezing out Canada? Can the world take action against Russia with the country's foreign affairs minister, Sergei Lavrov, at the table? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me now are CTV National News, Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier, Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief Rob Benzie, and we are looking to get Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay in on this chat. We're going to see if we can connect with him. Nice to see you all. Let's talk with you, Joyce, first. All of this, the backdrop right now with Canada in that Indo-Pacific strategy that they have laid on the table, not quite not laid really, on the table, yeah. <laughs> kind of a preview, kind of like the coming attractions before yeah. a big feature film. We're going to see it. We might not yeah. see it. But let's talk about that. What is happening now in, in terms of resetting all of the relationship with China as we go to this summit? Well, you know, I mean, resetting the relationship with China, China probably is a little bit too ambitious. There is very little of a relationship with China. I think that uh, China hasn't gotten over the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. Uh, okay, everybody has been freed, the two Michaels, Meng Wanzhou, but remember that. Uh, uh, President Xi is meeting with us, the Australian Prime Minister. He's meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister. He is meeting with the Indonesian uh, leader as well, not with Canada, met with Joe Biden. So, look, I mean, yes, was Canada left out in the cold? Prime Minister Trudeau was asked about that. Mm. Are you going to meet President Xi? And, you know, there was kind of a non-answer. And clearly, in the Indo-Pacific strategy that we don't know much about, uh, you know, our own Annie Bergeron-Oliver is there and reported back saying, you know, we're not getting many details from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Maybe they don't want to tell us. Maybe they don't have those details. They're still being ironed out. But it's clear that the Indo-Pacific strategy, as far as Canada is concerned, is they, they pick their side. Mm -hmm. Canada, Ottawa has picked a side. It's Indo-Pacific and it's not China. You cannot, you cannot ignore China the way you can ignore the United States. But, you know, clearly Canada has chosen a path um, where, you know, the trade and a lot of the energy will go to other countries, other Indo-Pacific countries rather than China, because it is a very complex and a very difficult mm -hmm. uh, relationship. And Rob, on that relationship, I mean, Joyce just said Canada has chosen a path. Would you think that Canada had any other path to choose at this, at this juncture? No, you know what, Mike? I don't think that Canada did in the sense that there are a lot of people in this country who are still really upset that two citizens of this country, the Michaels, uh, Kovrigan and Spavar, were held hostage, basically, as political prisoners for more than a thousand days um, because of uh, an arrest that happened in Canada that had really nothing to do with the federal government. I mean, it was, we were collateral damage in a geopolitical game between the Trump White House and, and uh, President Xi, and I think in China. And this is the problem. I think we've been sort of uh, spectators to this psychodrama. And unfortunately, two of our citizens uh, spent you know, almost three years in jail uh, for stuff they didn't do. I mean, I think that's something that, that if I'm the, the Trudeau government looking at, at public opinion here, uh, it's 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 a little like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. People are very very concerned about when they see injustices happening in this country. I think and I think if you're if you're uh, Trudeau, you don't want to be seen to be currying favor with with uh, with uh, um, Russia in any way. That's why the five hundred million dollar announcement is timed 
to, to help Ukraine is timed with this uh, summit. I think that's a, that's a signal to Moscow of where we are at in Canada. And I think the same goes for the Michaels and the, the lingering hangover from that. I wanted to pick up on that, Rob, but also mention to people we're still trying to get in contact with Peter McKay. Um, not connected, but he was also sanctioned by the Russian government today. Don't think that has anything to do with the fact that we can't connect with him. But anyways, we'll uh, try not to make that too much of a joke here, Rob. But I wanted to ask you, Vladimir Putin not at the G20. How do you see his influence on the summit with him actually not even being in the room? Well, it's the backdrop. I mean, he's the he's the global villain. I mean, maybe he's not he's not going there for out of his own personal safety because he knows nearly everyone is out to get him. I mean, I think it, it, it would be so awkward if he were there. Um, I mean, like a hundred thousand Russian troops have died uh, in this illegal invasion. That is almost twice as many as, uh, as the United States lost in Vietnam over a course of a decade. And more than a decade, and that's an, and that's an, an invasion that started in February. This has been a bloodbath. There've been hundreds, or tens of thousands of, of Ukrainian civilians killed, uh, billions in property damage. I mean, he, Putin is a world outlaw, and he shouldn't be at this summit. I mean, he shouldn't be welcomed at the summit. Russia, I'm not sure Russia should be welcomed at the G20. We do have Mr. McKay. Let's go to him right away. Thanks for joining us uh, once again. Uh, we're going to say that those sanctions had nothing to do with your lack of connectivity today. So uh, you can, uh, first of all, react to being sanctioned. But I also wanted to ask you about Canada's relationship to Russia and how they should really sort of manage that here. If, if you were Melanie Jolie, would you push for any kind of meeting with Sergei Lavrov, even just to have that diplomatic connection? Do we have Mr. McKay? He froze. Well, Joyce, you answer the question. You got less than a minute. If you were Melanie <laughs> okay, Jolie, would you have any kind of meeting with Lavrov? Well, you know, it's a difficult. It is a difficult, uh, a difficult question. I mean, is that what diplomacy? Isn't that what diplomacy is about? Um, you know, if it only to signal uh, Canada's disapproval, um, does Lavrov want to meet with Canada? Is also a question. Uh, you know, clearly, there are only two countries who have not condemned openly uh, the Russian invasion that are at the G20. That's India and China. Those are the two-ish friends that are left in that group. Uh, should Canada speak to him? I mean, you know, they, this is the pariah country, uh, definitely. They're, um, you know, as, as, as Benzie said, you know, the bad guy in the room. Uh, there's even talk about, you know, not having him in the G20. Why not the G19? Like, it used to be the G8, remember? And yeah. it became the G7. So, you know, is that the thing? Is that the way to go? We'll have to see. Joyce Napier, Rob Benzi, Peter McKay, who was sanctioned and not unable to join us today. And we apologize for that. That's your Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.